inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Probiotics for plants. They make plants healthier, more productive, and better able to take carbon out of the atmosphere. I'm your host, Richard Miles. Today on Radio Cade, my guest is Paul Zorner, CEO of Locus Agricultural Solutions, based in San Diego. Welcome to Radio Cade, Paul. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure. So, Paul, before we talk about plants, let's talk about probiotics. I think most people have heard of them and know in a vague way that they are somehow good for us. But explain what probiotics actually are and what their function is. Yeah, great. Well, I think most people have seen lots of information on probiotics for for humans. They occupy our intestines and they regulate all kinds of things from our immune health to our nutrient status to even our mood. And plants are no different. But in this case, probiotics for plants are, are live organisms, bacteria and fungi that live in the roots of plants. And they perform the same function for that plant that microbes in our intestines serve for us. They make the plant's immune system better, they help it take up nutrients from the soil, and they allow it to grow faster, better, produce more food, and in this particular case, too, turns the plant into an increased carbon pump, a stronger carbon pump in terms of pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turning it into sugars that ultimately get turned into carbon down in the soil, which is a wonderful thing, especially in this day and age where we're so worried about global warming. So, Paul, is there a way to precisely measure the increase in all these good things, like the increase in the plant health, the productivity, and the ability to take carbon out of the air? I I imagine that you can do a before and after without probiotics and those with. Is it that refined? Absolutely. And generally, when we put trials out, we focus on on agronomic performance. In other words, we work with growers, and and we work in Florida with with citrus growers, for example. And we'll generally put this out to their microsprinklers and drip irrigation systems to get it out into the root. And we compare a treatment with our probiotic against what we call grower practice. Whatever the grower is doing, we bolt it onto that and we take a look at the increased growth of the plant, more leaves, greener leaves, and then ultimately what's important is the yield of the of the citrus. In other words, is he getting more, in case of citrus growers, more pounds solid, more fruit and more sugar and things that are valuable to him. So that part's pretty easy. It takes time, of course. But then in terms of carbon, many people around the world are working on, okay, you take a soil sample and pull it up and you can send it off to a lab and you can measure the amount of organic carbon that's been deposited around the root system, again, compared to grower practice. So there are standard techniques for measuring just about anything. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of using the right one. And of course, our major focus is economic yield for the grower. Right. But again, what we found was really fascinating that as we did that, it focused on a more productive plant. We saw this remarkable increase in carbon, soil carbon sequestration as well. Was that kind of an accidental finding, or did you know it might have this effect from the very beginning? Science tells you that you should see something like this, but what we were doing, especially in Florida citrus, is we're trying to show the grower what might be happening between the time he applied our material, which would be early in the year, and nine months later, 12 months later, when he actually determines how much yield increase he might have got. And so we'll measure root mass increase, and we get like a doubling of fibrous root mass and increased canopy and increased root set. 
But we also thought, well, let's take a look at the soil in terms of its physiological characteristics. Soils breathe. You know, I was a kid, I grew up in a farm, and my mom used to go out and take a handful of soil at different places in the farm and literally smell it. This is good or that's bad. Soils are alive. They breathe. They're like little fermenters themselves. So we thought, well, let's take a look at the soil's breath, if you will, the emissions. And sure enough, we went out there, and there are techniques you can use to measure things. And we saw a reduction in carbon dioxide emission and nitrous oxide, which is 300 times the global warming gas that carbon dioxide is. So obviously, we were changing to us the microbial population because that's what regulates those types of emissions. And so then we thought, okay, well, we're seeing those types of reductions. Let's go measure the soil carbon. And sure enough, reduced carbon dioxide into the atmosphere was clearly associated with increased carbon sequestration in the soil. So a bit of a surprise, but also when you thought about it, it's like, okay, this makes sense. You mentioned the citrus industry. Have you found there are certain types of crops that it's more effective on and then others in which you don't get maybe the, the results you're looking for on both counts in terms of crop yield, but then also the carbon sequestration piece? Is it sort of uniform across yeah. crops or do you see big differences depending on what crop you're talking about? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's not so much differences across crops as it is across soil types. I see. The time of year, in other words, how cold or warm the soil is, how much moisture the soil has. Generally, soil health, and we kind of use the term agricultural probiotic, but we hear a lot of people talking about microbial soil health as well. Uh-huh. It's important for all crops, and what we have found is uh, two particular organisms that seem to work very well across a multitude of crops and conditions, but we think we can optimize it for grapes in Oregon compared to citrus in Florida as well, that we might have a good base case, and we do have an excellent kind of base mechanism. But we may find that we can add additional materials that will improve it even further as well. But we get good yield across multiple crops. So that leads me, I guess, to a follow-up question. So if it is soil-based, not necessarily crop-based, do you find regional differences? I mean, is this something that works really well in Florida types of soils and not so well in you know, Texas or the Midwest? Or No, no, we see good results. Like, for example, in potatoes, we see as much as a 40% increase in potato yields. You might see differences. We see a 5% increase in field corn. But that's not so much a function of the microorganisms in the soil types. It's a function of the genomics of the, of the crop and what kind of stress it might be under and a variety of other factors. In general, when you think about it, probiotics for, for crops are important regardless of what soil type, what region, what crop. You need a very active microbial population and the roots of those crops for a plant to truly express its full yield potential. So it sounds like a great idea with a great business potential. Let's talk about that, about the business side of it. Did you start out as the primary investigator, primary researcher of this technology, or when did you come along? And then what is the contrast between that side of it and then developing the company itself, finding those customers, closing those deals, hiring staff, growing the company? Describe a little bit what's that been like. Well, number one, I've worked in agriculture my entire life, so I'm 65 years old, right? So I've had a more than a 40-year career, and I've worked on both the agricultural chemical side, but also have worked extensively in microbes as well. And the founders of the company and friends that I've had for 20 years, Andy Lefkowitz and Sean Farmer, had a company called Gadaden Biosciences that made human probiotics. In actuality, that company became the largest seller of and developer of human probiotics in the world outside of the dairy case. And so they had a lot of knowledge there. And we kept in touch over those 20 years and thought, wow, we, A, we really like each other. And what can we do to be meaningful in agriculture? Well, we all thought that look, this would be something that would be very good to do because it's had limited effectiveness. People look at probiotics for plants as sometimes inconsistent at best. 
And we felt it wasn't necessarily the fact that the work microbes that you could apply to soils that would make the crop more productive, but deployment. You put a live microbe in an agricultural supply chain that's 9 to 12 months long, and they're live organisms. To go back to the yogurt analogy, it's like if you took a cup of fresh yogurt and put it through a supply chain for 9 to 12 months, you wouldn't think you could eat it, or at least you wouldn't enjoy eating it 12 months later. And so what we have done is we've created a technology that I would refer to as like a microbrewery for agriculture. And what that does allow us to set up distributed fermentation facilities or just local regional fermentation facilities where we can grow these materials up at very high concentrations, very inexpensively, and deliver them to the grower no more than, let's say, 10 to 12 weeks after they've been produced. And we have a very unique cold chain, whether it's kept cold the entire time up to the point of time to delivery. So we've kind of taken a different tack to it based upon our belief that microbes are going to be an important part of improving plant productivity, but then thought of a business model whereby we could make sure we could deliver the consistency and the efficacy of these materials at at reasonable prices and serve the grower in a way that actually helped him increase his on-farm profits. For the growers, is using the microbes or the probiotics, is that a significant upfront investment for them? And how much does it add to their overall costs? Well, it depends. It's not a real answer, but let me explain that. It's not a significant investment. Let's take like corn in the Midwest, basically 9 to $10 per acre for our treatment to the grower. And they may get anywhere from a 10 to a 13 bushel increase in yield. And even corn at $3 per bushel, which is a remarkably low price. Mm-hmm. That's 30 bucks against $10 investment. And generally, the rule of thumb in agriculture is if I make the grower 3 bucks, he'll turn around and give me a dollar. You want that 3 to 1 return. Mm-hmm. So that pencils out. What he's after is I want a return on our investment. Now, it gets even better over time in that what we have beginning to show is that we can also reduce the amount of fertilizer that they need to use. I see which is good not only in terms of taking some cost out of the bucket to allow them to pay for ours, but also helps with environmental services. People are really worried about movement of phosphate to other environments, right? And then, so that's the above-ground part of it and the input part of it. We're also working to monetize the below-ground carbon where there are markets where you can trade carbon credits. A grower would produce them, and somebody like the United Airlines or Amazon or other companies that are trying to reduce their carbon footprint would buy those credits from the growers. So it's kind of a triple bottom line, if you will, both environmentally, socially, and economically, but triple in terms of increased yield, decreased inputs, and potentially carbon monetization as well. So it sounds like the perfect solution. There's something in here for just about everyone to like, right? (laughs) You're not just appealing to one group. This is a win-win-win, as you said, for a lot of people. Yeah, certainly one thing as a company, too, we're dedicated to that. A week ago, we received our B Corps certification, which is a big deal. B Corps is a special group of people. It's 2,500 beneficial corporations around the world. We're the first ag input company in North America, Europe, or Asia to receive a B Corps certification. What it means is a third-party audit that basically certifies that as a company, you're paying attention to economics, but also social purpose and how you treat your workforce, how you interact with your customers get attention to both profit and purpose in terms of what you're trying to do as a company. In other words, not only am I sitting here talking about this, we actually are doing it as well. And we're very proud of that. So, Paul, one sign of success for new technology is when people start copying it, right, and competing with you. So what does your market space look like right now? Have other competitors offering similar services jumped into the market, or do you have this all to yourself? 
Oh, no. There are many good companies out there. We have a very unique platform in terms of our ability to directly impact carbon sequestration. Our fermentation platform is really unique. But there are probably 50 significant companies globally out there doing things like this and have been around for many years in some cases. Or people will do compost or what they call compost teas. Compost is basically a mechanism of taking organic matter and getting it to begin to degrade, which is building up microbes, and it's a way of putting microbes back into the soil. But what we're doing is just doing it very efficiently with a very concentrated material in order to drive more rapid population increases in those microbes that are important for plant yield. So at what point will your method specifically be the new best practice? Can you already foresee a point where no farmer in their right mind wouldn't do this? Well, growers, like I said, they look at them somewhat skeptically right now because of lack of consistency. And I think as we show that we've developed a process that eliminates that lack of consistency, yes, growers will adopt this. I see. So it's not a hit not or miss thing anymore. Right, mine yeah. now, yeah. it's just that their growers are a show me. You I know? see. And, right. <laughs> and they've got to have the increase in on farm profits. Got to be a reason for them to do this. Right. But I will tell you, the growers are natural stewards of the land. Yeah. They understand this instantaneously. It's a complex physiological process. Most growers understand that, look, I need live, healthy soils. So if you can show me you can deliver that to me on a consistent basis and allow me to invest in your product and get a return on that investment, they're all in. So let's talk now about you, Paul. As you mentioned, you've been in the agricultural business for basically all of your adult life. And before that, actually, growing up, you're a West Coast guy, right? About 30 years in San Diego. And then before that, you grew up in the Oregon and San Francisco Bay Area. And then you also grew up on a farm. Is that correct? Grew up on a farm. Spent the early part of my life in the Bay Area and then in Oregon through college. And I bounced around. I've lived in Kentucky, North Carolina. Uh, spent three years in Africa, three years in Hawaii. But basically had home base here at San Diego for 30 years. You could only handle so much East Coast, right? And then you had to beat feedback to the West Coast. <laughs> I love the East Coast. I'm actually, I'm an adjunct professor of horticulture at North Carolina State University. Okay, all right. All right. 32, 32 years, right? Yeah. So you grew up on a farm. How it obviously shaped you in some way in your choice of career, but are there specific memories you have of thinking like, I feel called to do this, or this is really what I want to do professionally? And what were some of the influences on you growing up? I mean, like pre-academic self, as a child, as a teenager, parents, teachers, what else sort of shaped you in that time period? Well, okay, I'll give you the answer that you might not expect to start with, but you know, I grew up on a moderately sized horticultural nursery. Uh, we grew lace leaf maples, rhododendron, azaleas, things like that. And we also have 30 acres of raspberries. And I will tell you, I hated it at the time. <laughs> it's work. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever pruned raspberry bushes, though, like gosh, right? Or run out and fed the chickens at four in the morning, you know, had all your chores to do before school, then you had to get back from school in order to help with that. But it did get in my blood. I went off in college and studied biology in, in high school. I wanted to be a doctor, but I couldn't stand the side of blood. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah but, that's a showstopper oh, right there. Right? Yeah. But ultimately, my memories and my work on our farm and even listening to my mother, I never knew my father. My mother was a single parent. She worked hard, and she certainly taught us a lot of stuff as well. I could name just about any plant species in Oregon on site. It's a scientific name as well, but began to understand once I was in school what was going on in the farm and what a natural biologist or ecologist my mom was in terms of taking care of the farm and its soil and everything else. And that fascinated me. It's like a big puzzle. 
and also it's, it's beautiful. We're in a relationship between species that we share. This beautiful blue globe that we occupy is a wonderful thing. And so I was smitten. And I didn't necessarily think in college I was going to go work in agriculture again. But then it became apparent when I was studying systems ecology well, agriculture is a great place to do this. Also, when I went to graduate, I wanted to get an advanced degree. And the only person that offered me an assistantship so I could afford to go to college was a lead scientist, Bob Zipdahl, at, at Colorado State University. So it was to work on agricultural ecology. So it fit like a glove. I was working on seed populations. And that just grew from there. It just sucks you in in terms of the beauty of the relationships. But then ultimately also, then you realize, well, wow, agriculture truly is a pathway to peace. Mm -hmm. That if rural communities can, can produce food and you can also produce energy from agriculture, and you can have stability in terms of food and energy, which translates to economic stability, if you have economic stability, you have political stability. So I truly believe that agriculture is the foundation of a free society. And so that pulled in from that respect as well. It's been 40, 45 years of pure joy in terms of trying to bring innovation to agriculture that helps growers be more productive per unit of land, per megaliter of water, and most importantly, per dollar of invested capital. So, Paul, you're the CEO of a successful company. You've had a great career. You're probably asked to speak from time to time, maybe to students or professional groups. What sort of words, you know, particularly sort of to students, someone just recently graduated from college, what sort of wisdom or advice do you give to those folks if they're trying to figure out what sort of career do I go to? What kind of choices do I make? Are there things that you tell them, you definitely do this and definitely stay away from that? Two things. One is I always say, do what you love. Never take a job that pays you more money over something that you're absolutely going to be in love with. That's a recipe for disaster. Because if you love doing something, problems are going to just be challenges, and you'll be excited, and you'll be able to excite other people as well. And then secondly, once you land somewhere, focus on doing your own job well, but learn to appreciate other people. Mm -hmm. And this is a team sport. And people are different. You know, you're Myers-Briggs, or I'm an ENTP. Uh, there's 16 of them, if you follow Myers-Briggs. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah. I learned very lot in my career that, wow, some people, they're different. I wonder why. <laughs> I have no idea. And they just think about things differently. And it's not because they're wrong. It's because they look at the world through a different prism. If you can begin to appreciate that, and also you know, know yourself, but know them, wow, it really opens up great possibilities for teamwork in terms of things being even more productive and fun than they were otherwise because you get people with all these different ways of looking at things and really remarkable innovation can occur in a situation like that. So do what you love and appreciate and respect yourself and appreciate and respect the people that you work with. And then lastly, never let the perfect be the enemy of good. There's no such thing as perfection. Get going and don't expect perfection from yourself and don't expect perfection from the people you work with because innovation happens one messy step at a time and oftentimes it can be one step forward, two steps backward, three steps forward, a step to the side. It's not a straight line from idea to success. It looks like a tossed a bunch of spaghetti on a plate. Right. You move from one side of the plate together. That's innovation. It's interesting. I asked this question of almost all of our guests in terms of what was their journey like. And there seems to be a, a correlation between the folks who've been around a little bit longer. They almost always use the exact same line you just used, that it's not a straight line. Whereas some of the younger entrepreneurs I talk to say, well, it's all about hard work. <laughs> and, and it's both, right? But I think the ones who've been through an entire career realize that sometimes hard work won't get you the immediate results you need. And you take, like you said, a step to the well, side or even a step back sometimes. And you know, 
it's also about resilience. Yeah. Hard work and resilience. And I often tell people, I have close to 40 patents. And I will tell you, great majority of those are patents on things that I didn't start to do on purpose. Mm-hmm. They were observations from starting a process and realizing that, wow, that's not what I would have thought. Let's explore that. That's what came up with the innovation. Right. So ideas are great. Hard work is great. But it's resilience and being aware of your surroundings, trying to look for things that aren't obvious. Paul, this has been a great conversation. Appreciate you taking the time. And congratulations on the success of your company, Locus Agricultural Solutions. And I look forward to having you back on the show at some point. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to put me on your show. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Great. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Richard Miles. Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Hartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida.